Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. And I'm Tom Beer, editor-in-chief of Kirkus. And welcome to another episode of our fully booked podcast. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for joining us, Tom. Yay, I'm glad to be here, Megan. We're, it's, an ex, been a, it's been a strange year. I was going to say an exciting year, but really it's been a strange <laughs> year. And we're yeah. looking back, right? Yeah, we are looking back. This is our annual year in review. I, it was it, That was fun to catch a, a glimpse of your real-time editing process, Tom. You know, I like I like the exchange of adjectives. It has been a, a strange year, more than anything else, probably. So, yes. So here we are, but we made it and we're still here. We made it. And one of the nice things for me, as I know it was for you, was, have. I mean, it was nice for you to do the podcast. It was nice for me to listen to it every week and occasionally drop in. But, it, you know, it was a year where it was really, really nice to hear familiar voices on a regular basis and feel plugged into the world again and engaged in the world when we're all sort of sequestered in our homes. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening. And also, thank you for letting me do this. This is like, this is, <laughs> as, as I've stated before on the record, like this is one of my absolute favorite parts of the job and a job that I truly deeply love. So it's it, the fact that like, especially interesting for me and what made this year a little bit different on the podcast is the fact that like pretty much the script went out the window in, by like, by, <laughs> by like April, you know, because it's like, e even when you have like a really seasoned, uh, famous, legendary author like Julia Alvarez saying, you know, off the top of my head, you know, like like it, it was the world was so different, like our living conditions were so different in just like a matter of weeks, it changed. And like you had to find the ground beneath you again. And I feel like I got to do that in our conversation this year. And that was like such a gift to me. Totally, totally. And for so many authors, too. I mean, these were people who were coming out with books. They were expecting to be touring, to going to bookstores and here they were suddenly doing everything virtually. And so it was a it was a strange year. I know when I talked to Claudia Rankin, she had just opened, uh, not even quite opened a play at the shed in New York that was, yeah. you know, based on part of the book that she that she released this year. Right. And the whole thing just was closed and the theater was shuttered and that was the end of it. And she was telling me off tape just what a strange experience that was to go through. Yeah, it's just like all of these, some of these really long-term dreams. You know, I think of Claudia and the play. I think of everyone who uh, who was a debut author this year. You know, some of these books are five, ten, even fifteen years in the making, and they they finally they finally get the agent and the deal, and it's going through prints, and then this. You know. Yeah, they were lucky to be able to, you know, uh, I think to do podcasts to, you know, once everybody sort of figured out what Zoom was <laughs> and how to do virtual author events, those were the things I think that really saved it for everybody. I mean, even though you got tired of Zoom meetings for work, there was something still so fun and intimate about 
getting on Zoom and there's Edmund White yeah. or there's, you know, uh, you were you did an event with with Carrie, uh, Carrie Freed, yeah. you know, it had a strange intimacy and and um, importance, you know, because of the circumstances we were in. Yeah. Can somebody tell me where Zoom came from, though? Like, why? Why? <laughs> why? Did it, where did Zoom come from? Why did it become the platform? You know, like, yeah. I, I, you know, Megan, I do not know, but I wish I had invested in Zoom in late 2019, <laughs> but I did not. Yeah. And now I'm feeling like people are turning against it. And there's, you know, I was on, I can't remember what it was called, but a publisher did an event on a different platform the other day. I was like, oh, all right, Zoom's over. <laughs> we're moving on to the next, we're moving on to the next thing. But it got me through 2020. So I'm grateful for that. In my worst moments, I worried that podcasts would be over because there are so there are fewer people now taking their daily commute. You know, like I know that you have listened on the subway before. Oh, I, that's where I used to listen. That was because it was always sort of the perfect length for my commute from my apartment in Brooklyn to the Kirkus office in Midtown Manhattan. But, you know, now I just do it a little differently. I do it while I'm doing chores around the house, you know, so I'm plugged in and I'm doing dishes and I'm listening to you and Kathy Park Hong or you and Lydia Yuknovich and uh, or while I'm folding laundry. So, you know, you find the little, you know, gaps in your day where you're doing something, but you really want to be listening. And that's I guess people have kept doing it. Well, I'm grateful for every single person who's kept doing it this year. Thank you, listeners, always for tuning into Fully Booked. Like, um, words fail me. Unfortunately, it's my profession to write, but thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, a little gift for our listeners. We're rerunning um, two of our favorite, absolute favorite interviews of the year. And I mean, we've, we've already tipped our hand, Tom. We have. We have. The first one we're going to do is Claudia Rankin, the author of Just Us, An American Conversation, published by Gray Wolf, which was absolutely one of my favorite books of the year. It made me think and blew me away in a, in a way that I just wasn't totally prepared for, even though I know Claudia's genius. Mm -hmm. And so I was nervous, but also excited to to talk with her. Well, it wound up being one of our listeners' favorite conversations of the year, one of our most popular podcasts probably of all time, but we'll have to check the numbers on the back end. But bravo, Tom. It was a lovely conversation. <laughs> it holds up on a re-listen, and I love your exploration with Claudia of this, of Just Us. It's like, she's she always is giving you so many different, like she's hitting you on so many levels, you know, like this, this kind of like cross-disciplinary, you know, essayistic, poetic, you know, there are images in the book, you know, and I just love the conversation starters in here, you know, like just considering the perceptual and experiential divide between black and white Americans is what the book is about. And I think that it has started a lot of conversations. Yeah. And, and I think one of the cool things about our conversation was how meta it was, yeah. you know, I realized as going into it that we were a black woman and a white man yeah. talking about issues of blackness and whiteness and, and having a conversation, which is really what she feels is so important and yet so hard to do. So there was a lot of pressure, but I was happy with how it came out. And I'm glad people people liked it. Yeah. Unlike some of the white men with whom she converses in the book, you were not in an airport or on a plane. 
but, (laughs) but, but you still got there. (laughs) So we were, you know, she picked those spots because she said they were sort of liminal, you know, places that were neither here nor there in a weird way, as we sort of met, you know, over Zencaster, which is the platform we use to record, I felt like we were sort of in a liminal space. Um, So we we treated it as one. Okay, well, I'm thrilled that this will be the first episode we're rerunning for our 2020 year in review. But right before we get to it, Tom, um, there's something I want to tell you about. Well, Megan, go ahead. Well, I have this message from one of our sponsors, something wicked, something charming. Something scary, something new. From Amazon Original Stories and best-selling authors Rainbow Rowell, Nick Stone, Soman Chanani, Ken Liu, and Gail Foreman come five short stories that take the happily ever after in daring new directions. Download now at Amazon.com slash audio. Prime members, read and listen for free, Tom. I'm ready to do it. <laughs> Let's do it. But first, we'll listen to your conversation with Claudia Rankin, author of just us. Claudia Rankin joins us now from New Haven. Welcome, Claudia, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tom. This book just is so rich and extraordinary. I read it all the way through, underlining, and then I went back and reread sections and underlined more. And it just does that thing that I love in a book, which is that it just seems to get richer and show you new things about itself as you read it. So thank you very much for, for writing this book. I think it's really coming along at a, at a momentous time. So I wondered if we could start by just having you read a passage. And I think you, you said you'd like to read something from the beginning, the, the what-if poem that's at the beginning. Would you read that for us? I'll read the first page of, of what if. What does it mean? to want an age-old call for change, not to change, and yet also to feel bullied by the call to change. How is a call to change named shame, named penance, named chastisement? How does one say, what if, without reproach? The root of chastise is to make pure the impossibility of that. Is that what repels and not the call for change? Mm. That's wonderful. So the book is, like so much of your work, it's really a diverse creature. It, it has things that we might read as essays. It has very poetic passages like that. And sometimes the lines between the two are blurred. How did you how did you come to settle on this way of writing that you also use it in Citizen and some of your other works? How did you come to that? Well, I think that I, you know, I'm a poet by training, but I also write essays and I have written plays. And each genre gives you something different in terms of what it allows. And I thought for this book, it would be... Um, really amazing if I could bring all my worlds into the one book so that Claudia, the researcher, the person interested in archival documents, the person who writes poetry, the person who writes essays could meet inside this inquiry around what conversations about race 
form, what difficulties, what levels of uncomfortable environments get created? How do you negotiate that? And it, it did feel like a big enough subject that it needed everything I knew. I was going to throw the kitchen sink at it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I did. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I love about it is I feel this topic of talking about race in America, talking about whiteness. Um, it really requires us to break out of our preconceived little ways of seeing things and understanding things. And you're playing around with form and, and throwing things together that we might not expect really forces the reader to kind of be more on his or her toes and unsettled a little bit, but in a good way of being open and receptive and thinking outside the box. So I, I want to talk for a minute about the title. Really, I want to ask you about the subtitle. The title of the book is Just Us, An American Conversation. The idea of a conversation really runs through the whole book. It's, it's a theme. Conversations that you have with white men in certain places about whiteness and white privilege. Conversations that you have with fellow artists and writers, people of color, about race and racism. And one of the things that really was provocative to me and just made me think differently was what it means to have a conversation. Could you say a little something about why you wanted that to be the title and what it means to have a conversation in America today? Well, you know, I think we have seen that when race is on the table, when we're talking about white supremacy, notions around white supremacy, racism, inequities, everybody uh, clamps up. And and at first I thought it was um, a kind of belligerence, but I, I have come to believe that we have such different experiences that, you know, when a white person says to me, what do you mean this happens? I can't believe this happens. It really, what they're really saying to me is this has never happened to me. And so it, I find it hard to believe you. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so this, this idea that we're living these parallel realities was something I wanted to replicate inside the conversation because, it, it, you know, you come to conversations usually like our conversation now to, to learn from each other, to build something, not to be wrong or right, but to really kind of construct a world in which I tell you something, you tell me something, and we, we move forward from that. And that, that, kind of building and mutual interests that governs other conversations seem to be stalled in talking about race in this country, especially if it's in terms of whiteness. I think white people have spent entire lifetimes not understanding that their whiteness is constructed and that they have investments because of that construction. Yeah. You know, and I feel like you and I are here, as you say, having a conversation now, a, a white man and a black woman about about this issue. So I feel like my hope is that the book sparks these kinds of conversations. White people absolutely have to be able to have them, not just with black people, but with each other. Yes, exactly. The, the book opens with a section that I, I love called Liminal Spaces One. 
um, and you've decided that you don't, in the course of your life, have just kind of natural, casual conversations with white men. And you decide that you're going to try and engage in these conversations with people. And tell us where you decided to do that and, and set us up a little bit for what that section is about. Well, that, that piece originally ran in the New York Times, and I had taught a class at Yale called The Construction of Whiteness. And, and my students often went off and interviewed sweet mates and friends about whiteness. And I thought, well, who am I not talking to? Who am I not in conversation with? And despite my husband being white and, you know, some of our friends being white, I don't have that kind of casualness with white men in the world. So I thought my challenge would be to approach men I didn't know. And because I travel so much, the place where I spend the most amount of time pre-COVID is was on planes sitting next to people for like seven hours or, <laughs> you know, and, and saying, you know, maybe some pleasantries, but often not having any real conversation. And so I made it my, you know, goal, something um, challenge. I challenged myself to, to sort of strike up these conversations where race, whiteness, privilege, male privilege became the subject in the conversation. And it took a little time. And, you know, at first I, I was shy and I was, it, it felt awkward, but finally I got around to beginning to ask these men about their privilege and the piece documents that. Yes. And you get all kinds of reactions from people who sort of want to deny that they have white privilege. Uh, you have some encounters that are outright unpleasant. The, you know, the fellow who steps in front of you in the line for first class and doesn't seem to even see you. Mm -hmm. And another conversation that you document where you've had a good conversation, but you, but he writes to you later and basically admits that he had sort of misrepresented things about his hometown and his childhood, that there was a sort of simmering racial tension that was ran underneath the placid surface of of his hometown. Did you feel in having all these various kinds of conversations that you, did you get from it what you wanted to? Did you get out of it what you hoped to get out of it? That's a hard question because I, I, I don't think I had a hope in the sense of I was at point A and I wanted to arrive at point B. I was curious and I was curious about the world of these men, as well as my own response to them, you know, what I could hold as a listener. So in as much as I had the conversations, I would say I got, I got out of it what I went to get, which was the conversation itself. But how the conversations went, I couldn't have anticipated them. So I didn't, you know, each one went very differently and asked different things of me as an interlocutor and as a listener. What surprised me was not achieved in the conversations themselves, but afterwards. So in, in the third um, documented conversation, that man, he ended up, ordering my books online, reading my work, getting in touch with me. 
And he and his wife and me and my husband met in Manhattan and had um, dinner and have continued our relationship since then. When the piece was published in the Times, I received over 200 letters from men saying, you know, this is how I think you got it wrong, or I don't think you have a real sense of what my life has looked like. And these these were letters that were like, you know, I could have been Emily Dickinson and <laughs> <laughs> because they were pages and pages of descriptions, often ending with a phone number saying, you can call me and talk to me. And then on the New York Times website, there were many, many, many more reactive responses to the piece. So that was interesting. I That's when I made the realization and really understood that when I say white privilege, white men often hear economic privilege. And I'm actually just talking about the privilege to be able to live your life, to have an encounter with the police and the police say, you know, all right, this is what you need to do rather than kill me. <laughs> or yep. to go to a store and to be able to just go down an aisle, pick something up, pay for it and leave without somebody following me. So I, you know, white privilege to me really is about the ability to live, to move around w- without an obvious surveillance happening. And that could end as in George Floyd's case with your death. But when white, these white men, for the most part, heard the words, white, the phrase white privilege, they were hearing economic privilege. So what I, what I was getting were letters saying, you know, my parents worked really hard. I didn't have a lot of money. And, and really just taking for granted the notion that you could wake up in your own house and have somebody break down the door and shoot you as in the, you know, in the case of Breonna Taylor and many other people. So, so that was, that was what I learned. Yeah. So now I'm very careful when I say, I, and I often say when I use white privilege, I'm talking about the ability to live, just live your life. I don't know if you've read Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast. Uh, I just read it. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think a very interesting companion to yours, but she really, tries to look at, uh, she tries to put a different lens as not, not unlike you do on the issue. And she sort of says that, that race in America is almost treated as a separate caste as it was, is in India with the untouchables and that it's not necessarily an economic thing, but it's keeping people in the place where white people, where the superior caste expects them to be. And when people break out of that or threaten it in some way, it's, it sends people around, the white people around the bend. I don't think you have to break out of it to be sent around the bend. Mm. I think there are white people who are just irritated by the presence of black people, period. <laughs> you know, and yeah. as, as we've seen in a number of the um, Karen videos that have been making the rounds recently, I think there is a real sense in this country that segregation is how life should look. And, um, you know, George Wallace, segregation today, tomorrow, forever. But, but there, you know, that, 
that spaces in and of themselves, neighborhoods, um, schools are white spaces. That's the presumption. So you arrive in those spaces, you are somehow breaking the thing. You know, when you think about um, Robin DiAngelo talks about how, I believe it's Robin DiAngelo who talks about how a, a broken school is one where Black children attend. A broken neighborhood is one where Black people live. <laughs> De facto, de facto. De facto, exactly. Wow. Well, one of the things you write in the book, I I jotted this down, if white people don't see their whiteness, how can they speak to it? And I think in some ways, maybe that's what you're talking about here. These guys who would write you letters and say, well, I wasn't economically privileged, but they actually just couldn't see the privilege, as many of us don't as white people, Mm -hmm. the privilege that whiteness affords us in the world. You know, it's almost this thing that that you're able to coast along on it until someone brings it to your attention or in, or it's taken away from you or what have you. But that suggests to me that a lot, you know, a lot of the work has to be done, you know, by white people really grappling with this idea that our race gives us a privilege that we don't always see, but exists and operates in the world. Exactly. I think it seems like a small ask, but for some reason it is disconcerting for white Americans to understand that the systems uh, were set up to enable their their white people's advancement in this world. Um, you know, one easy way to even look at it and think about it is immigration laws in the world. Look how long it took for certain segments of the population to achieve citizenship versus white Anglo-Saxon men in 1790 in the 1790 Immigration Act, which said that, you know, the people who were allowed to vote and own property were white Anglo-Saxon men. And, and, so Italians, Greeks, all kinds of Mediter- you know people from the Mediterranean, all kinds of people were fighting to get into this umbrella of whiteness. And now that they, you know, the Black Irish have made it in, the Black Italians have made it in, you know, then it gets shut down, and and everyone forgets that this was not de facto for them. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things, Claudia, I wanted to ask you was just about which I love in the book is the way in which you're always, I want to say angling, but that sounds <laughs> somehow too <laughs> conniving, but you're always looking to push that conversation you're having a little bit farther to, to turn it over, to turn the rock over and see what's underneath it. And one of the things that you say often kind of derails these conversations that are so important is this sense of false civility you know, that, that people want to be polite. They don't want to go to that uncomfortable place. And you give the example, which I love, of the dinner party where I forget exactly specifically what's being discussed, but the issue of race and, mm-hmm. and white privilege comes up. And there's a woman who suddenly just deflects the entire conversation onto the dessert tray. Some brownies have been brought on <laughs> out on a silver tray. And she just derails the conversation and says, oh, you know, oh, what lovely brownies. This is something I think you see happen a lot in these conversations. Yeah, I I think civility is the thing that we have seen used to cover over the portal (laughs) into real conversations about reality. 
you know? So in that particular um, dinner party, we were talking about the presidency and how it is that our current president came to power. And somebody at the party um, was writing a book and he said it was economic. And I said, well, first of all, capitalism is racism. And secondly, you cannot, you know, he ran on, on racist ideology. So no one who voted for him can claim that his continued white nationalist um, rhetoric is a surprise. He was very clear. He said, I'm a nationalist, use that word. So that became a little bit heated. With, and, and then this woman, this white woman at the, the dinner party just said, how lovely the brownies look. And, and, and sure, I was being a little bit provocative, but I also was a little irritated when I said to her, are you trying to silence me? Are you shutting down this conversation? And clearly the... If the ramifications of that is that I have never been invited to that house again, <laughs> because rudeness apparently is worse than deflection. <laughs> so, you know, what can you do? <laughs> but you, you know, and you write about this, you were looking to keep that moment authentic and for people to be able to use the word hold a lot. And I like that. It's sort of, you're testing the friendship and, and trying to hold the differences and the agreements there and for people to deal with them. Um, mm -hmm. But it's challenging. Well, I, it's challenging, but I, I feel like, you know, I've been challenged my entire life. I have been holding a lot of racist statements directed my way inside friendships, inside jobs, I've been continuing to work with people, though they have said very belittling and dismissive things to me. And I have managed to negotiate those and come to work the next day or pick yeah. up the phone the next time the person calls. And yet, whenever I make the invitation to think about whiteness and think about how racism is at play in our interactions, then I become the bad guy. And, and with no recognition that I have been holding, receiving, having to metabolize these assaults, whether they're directed at me or in the society at large, for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I, you know, as I was reading the book, there were moments where I was like, oh, she's going too far. She's pushing it too hard. But I ultimately came to feel that you were really, that you were almost, as you say, just said, you were asking of people to give as much to you as, as you give to them in a way and to meet you on that grounds. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, what's the moment that you felt I was pushing it too hard? Some of the, the dinner party scene might be one. You know, I mean, that, that was literally just an instinctual reaction. Like people are at this dinner party. Do they, you know, they, maybe they don't want to be challenged. Maybe, I, you know, I think part of it is that I would feel so uncomfortable myself ever pushing that 
in that way, you know, because I'm well, you know, I'm socialized and, and to, to be quiet about those things as, as I think we all are. So I think those were, maybe that was, that was one moment I'm thinking of. I didn't feel, you know, you have the friend who you go to see Fairview with the play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love that, that passage. You've gone to see the play and at the end of the play, there's a call to the audience, the white members of the audience to come on stage. And I should let you tell it because you, you, you wrote it and you lived it. Could you, could you explain briefly what that situation was? Well, I will, but I want to go back a little bit to what you said initially about, you know, you were about to say, I am well socialized. Yeah. So I felt the dinner party was to, to break the, the laws of civility around socialization for dinner party might be pushing it too far. But, you know, I, I think that when he insisted on the fact that that it was all um, economics, mm. that that was a moment when I was being my my the violence that's being done against black people in the society was being erased. Mm. And to me, you know, I I also was well socialized growing up, but it doesn't. I was very conscious in my insistence on that because I wanted to say you can't erase a reality that is very dangerous for immigrants, for black people, for women, that, you know, over 60% of white men voted into power. Yes, I understood the whole piece is about what what it means to break the laws of civility. I understood I was breaking those laws. But, you know, I think we have to stop feeling like good manners are better than recognizing the inequities and inhumanity that is being brought to to huge segments of the society. Yeah. So that I, I will just say that to that, but to the fear view, um, I was just speaking to that friend this morning, actually, <laughs> and <laughs> we were talking about um, what makes a good conversation because she's a philosophy professor. But she and I, we um, we went to see Fairview, uh, and Fairview is a play that looks at um, what white people project onto black people. And the play makes this ask at the end where it says to the white members of the audience, will you um, give up your seats for a few minutes and stand on stage so that the people of color in the audience can hold this by themselves for a minute, that they can have in the space of the audience something that's not in the world, a, a space that's just for them, that you both share, but you've given up your seat. It's, it's almost like a kind of soft reparations, you know, yeah. and you go stand on. And my white friend who attended the play with me, when they asked the white people to go on stage, she refuses to go. And I can't say to her, you must go, but I'm sitting there waiting for her to do what <laughs> what they have asked her to do, and she refuses to do it. And as I'm sitting there, I find myself getting more and more and more enraged by her refusal, because it feels to me like such a soft and, in a sense, meaningless <laughs> um, ask, and yet even that she refuses. So the piece 
examine sort of my own emotional, heightened emotional feelings around that. And I write it out and I discuss it with my therapist actually afterwards. I, I, I actually employed a therapist for this book. I, I went out, I found a therapist and I said, you know, what I would like us to do together is I'm going to write these pieces for the book and I would like to discuss them with you. And if you could help me understand why I react in the ways that I react and why you think um, the white people react in the ways that they react or other people react in the ways that um, we can discuss those things. And I will fold that into the essay. And she agreed. And so after I wrote it out, I brought it to the shrink. I, we discussed it. And then once I wrote the piece out, I send the piece to a fact checker, which I also employed for this project. And he and I fact checked any references in the piece. Then I had a lawyer look at the pieces and she responded in different places. And then I gave the piece back to the person I had the conversation with. And in this case, um, this friend. And I said, you know, this is, you know, my understanding and my memory of what happened between us on the day we went to see Fairview. What do you think? And do you want to write a response? And so she read the piece. And as it says in the book, she said, this is what I said. This is what you said, but it's not what I intended. And so she then wrote out what she was feeling during that time. And that becomes part of the piece. Yeah, it's very, it's intense. And I, I, I really liked the fact that you, you asked her about it. You know, you, you said, I'm going to have a conversation about this. Here's this thing that enraged you and seemed incomprehensible. You know, so many friendships, I think, would either founder on something like that or it would get glossed over. And you, you know, you asked her to account for it and, and you told her what your feelings were about the situation. So I feel like it was a really honest transaction and it sounds as though the friendship is maybe stronger for it in some ways. I think so. I mean, I think we, we are very different people and have very different orientations in the world and beliefs in the world. I mean, she just recently wrote a piece about attending a defund the police rally and then feeling at a certain point she needed to go up to the police and tell them um, that she didn't agree with everything that was being <laughs> asked for in the, in the signs. And the other women she went with were enraged. They were like, why are you feeling like you need to do this right now? Um, so she's somebody who is very, um, I think, aware of her own limits in terms of what she will and will not do and is willing to um, engage the engagement. So in that way, I, I feel very lucky with our friendship because we, nothing is left <laughs> unaddressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, Claudia, I, I mean, we could talk all day. I feel this subject is so it's vital and your approach to it, to me, just recasts it and makes me think about it in a different way than I'm used to thinking about it, which really is provocative, but also, you know, meaningful to me. But I guess I just wanted to ask you one thing, which was this book is coming out at such an extraordinary moment. 
you know, you wrote all these pieces that are in the book before George Floyd, before the protests. I, I assume they were written, yeah, before before the yeah. protests this summer. Yeah. No, they uh, were in I mean the book was in production a year, you know, in the last year. Yeah. And so I guess I'm wondering for you, what does it mean to have just us coming out into this moment and how do you how do you see what's going on? Is there a different kind of a conversation happening in America because of the protests and 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 the large numbers of people that have come out to to say this is not right? Well, I think um, this is in a way the perfect climate for just us. It's one where people are open to understanding the inequities. I mean, we've had some in- tragic and um, horrible things like the, the killing of Floyd, but also the Amy Cooper video for me is one of the most striking uh, moments um, of the last few months as well, because we have somebody in Amy Cooper who knows the right language, African-American, excuse me, I'm going to call the police now. You know, she <laughs> talk about civility, yeah, the height of civility. Yeah. You know, excuse me, I will call the police now. And yet extremely capable of weaponizing the narratives of white femininity in service of the possible death of African-Americans. So I think that we are in an extraordinary moment, extraordinary, pushed by the executive branch and the Senate into having to accept the fakeness, the, the fake news, the fabrications, the rejection of science, the rejection of inequities, or take on the world that's in front of us. And you know, and what we've seen in Portland, what we've seen during the port, the protests across the country, is that for the first time, people are saying we're ready to take on the world in front of us. And in order to achieve systemic change inside the various institutions and systems that we have, we're going to have to start one-to-one. We're going to have to start speaking to each other with a shared vocabulary, a shared understanding, a shared recognition of American history. And so I cannot think of a better time to begin to think about having conversations. I can't either. And I, I really am convinced this book will play a role in all of that because it just... It, it really turns over so many preconceived notions and, and you offer almost an example really of how to do this. So thank you for the book, Claudia. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us on Fully Booked and best of luck um, with the book out in the world. Thank you, Tom. And stay safe, wear your mask, vote, do all the things that I'm going to do. <laughs> Good, I will. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Once again, that was Claudia Rankin, author of Just Us, Out from Grey Wolf. Tom, what a talk. 
<laughs> I know. Well, you know what? You can depend on Claudia Rankin. I mean, I, I just felt like if we had her on the podcast, we were going to get something provocative, you know, surprising and something that would really stay with people. And it was nice to revisit it after all these months and find that, you know, there was still a lot to think about there. Yeah, yeah. It was really one of those special interviews. And it's like, you know, at, at this point in in our careers, we we've, you know, interviewed a lot of authors, you know, we've had a lot of conversations, but there there always are the ones that really stick with you. Indeed, indeed. How many people have you interviewed, Megan? You like to say this, oh, and God. I want to hear you say uh, it on, on air. I, Come on. I, yeah. I have for Kirkus, and, and like, so I got my first assignment for Kirkus in January 2013, if you can believe that. And uh, I have interviewed, <laughs> we, I have interviewed more, more than 500 authors for Kirkus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I don't have an exact number, but it's more than 500. And, and a few dozen of those, more than once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of conversation. So, but there's some, as you say, yeah. you know, and it's hard to remember all 500, but there's some that stick with you. And I'm going to guess that Julie Alvarez is one of those oh, for you. Oh, Tom, this was, this definitely was, this is one I carry with me. And, you know, it, what it, as I think we mentioned it when we were doing our intro chit chat, like this came at a very significant time, which was when the world changed back in spring and we all were exploring, I think, the possibility of lockdown or an imperfect lockdown. You know, it was like right in that, speaking of liminal spaces, right in that space, I got to talk to Julia Alvarez for the first time. And um, Tom, she's such a legend. And I was so excited mm -hmm. to speak with her and that she was so generous and vulnerable with me, you know, in, in our conversation was, a, it was a pretty profound experience, I thought. Yeah. And, you know, the amazing thing is that that was her first adult book in 14 years. I know. Can you imagine, no. you know, you, you've been writing, she'd done other, some other work for young readers and whatnot, but to, to come out with your first novel in 14 years, the week practically that all this stuff, you know, happens I is... It's mind-blowing. I know. It was unbelievable. And it's so a little bit about the book, which is fantastic. Um, it, it's she I remember that Julia described it as, you know, kind of like a book of Job of this character, Antonia Vega. Um, she's the second of four sisters who immigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic when they were young. And she's retirement age. It's 2019 in the book. And she's an English professor living in Vermont recently widowed. She's just retired and um, just contemplating what her the next steps of her life will be. And um, she does get a little help from the sisterhood, that's for sure. But there, it's like it's just like such a rich novel with like, you know, the kind of characters you don't want to leave behind when you shut the book. And yeah. it gives a lot to readers. So great novel, great conversation, which I'm really excited for us to replay soon. Um, but first, um, there's something else I want to tell you about, Tom. There is. What, what's that, Megan? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Out now from Simon & Schuster's Tiller Press is, so to speak, 11,000 expressions that will knock your socks off. And uh, it's a saving grace this season, offering people of all ages a fun way to engage and connect. Wow, my socks are off. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, wait, there's more. 13 years in the making, so to speak, was a labor of love for language obsessives, Harold and Shirley Kobliner. Tom, can you relate? 
Oh, language obsessive? I'm, it's, this is, sounds like a book for me. <laughs> well, the Copliners ended up creating the largest collection of its kind. To help get the conversation started, So to Speak is also packed with dozens of word games and hundreds of vintage illustrations available wherever books are sold. It sounds charming. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you know what? Sometimes I do, you might not believe this, Tom, but I occasionally do find myself at a loss for words. And, you know, this, this, this might be able to help me with future episodes. Not, not anymore, apparently, because you're going to have this in your back pocket. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so after the break, we'll hear from Julia Alvarez, author of Afterlife, out from Algonquin Books. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. Welcome, Julia, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Megan, in this uh, very strange time. <laughs> yes, thank you for making time in a strange time. And of course, we're we're right on the precipice, it seems, of going um, under lockdown um, from coast to coast. Right. I'm at Middlebury, Vermont. And the college Friday sent all the students home. The campus is completely deserted, and you're not allowed on the campus unless you are an essential essential personnel are allowed on campus. And this will probably be the last time that I do come on campus. Wow. Um, just to be careful for everybody, not just myself. Huh. It's so interesting having read this beautiful novel of yours, Afterlife, um, in the context of what is going on in the world. And it was notable, too, to me how the the characters in this book are living within the context of the greater world. I mean, um, the main character in this book celebrates her birthday on March 15th, 2019, which it's also noted is the day of the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand. And it's kind of like a, a zooming out and a zooming in um, in many different ways in this book. But be, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's first please um, answer... Okay. Afterlife is your first adult novel in nearly 15 years, which does not mean you have not been busy writing poetry, nonfiction, YA books, children's books. I read on your website that readers often ask why you jump from genre to genre. And you, you write on the website, I blame my life. So I want to ask you, what in your life can you blame for this novel, a.k.a. what inspired it? Oh, dear. I would <laughs> say it's been 15 years since the last adult novel. Uh, I have been writing other things. I do keep to a writing a writing life because for me it's a ritual. It's a way of life. It's not just for publication. And that's the other thing. I I've been publication shy. I I just haven't been in a rush. Haven't had the ambition. I guess the gasoline that drove my that was in my tank and drove my me to write, 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 write and publish, publish, publish. Somehow it didn't seem to run the car anymore. And it was a time of reflection. And I think I, I call this my first novel uh, as an elder. Someone having, having come through a number of things, I, I, I call this afterlife a kind of um, contemporary book of Job <laughs> with a woman <laughs> at the center um, in which everything in a way that she has staked her life on is suddenly removed, including 
her beloved her beloved literature on which she has depended as a professor of literature to give meaning and context and help her navigate her life and it somehow somehow is kicked out from under her and she suffers a bunch of losses. Also, as you say, she looks up to a wider world and sees it's an elegiac time as we see the end of so many things in nature, so many species compromise, climate change, divisiveness, so many things seem at, a, at an ending. So, you know, it is that moment in her life. Uh, was it a moment like that in my life? Well, I come from a very large extended Latino familia that I've always been so happy because it's just rich with character and many connections. But what happens is that when you start losing a generation, you don't just lose a nuclear one or two, you lose a whole flank of tios and tias, abuelas, older cousins. And I was experiencing those kinds of losses, not just my parents, but all those, um, figures of my childhood. And then I, I, I lost a sister to suicide as well. And it just was, you know, I, I had to I had to put things I had to put things down and, you know, find reinvent, uh, rediscover, reflect, and not just react and write. You know, it, it just became a, a time of of uh reassessment. And um anyhow, I think that that gives context to where this novel is coming from. What's the life after the life we've been living is over? Uh, and I, you know, uh, my publisher was a little worried. Afterlife, oh well, people think this is about, you know, a, a Christian uh, <laughs> self-help uh, book of some kind, or and you know, but I, I stuck to it because I, I, I do think that you know we, um, we do you know, go through our lives, going through many deaths. And um, as, that, as that wonderful poem by Barry, the, the, the farmer poet, uh, says uh, the manifesto, the mad farmer's manifesto, uh, he, the last line of that is practice resurrection. You know, I think this is, all of this goes into this into this book. And that's a messy explanation. That's why it took 15 years to write. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, talking about it, uh, whereas writing is, uh, you know, the refining, the the clearing away what is unnecessary so that what remains is charged. Sure. And this is a very charged book. So we can agree that this protagonist that you've created, Antonia Vega, she's at this point in her life where I mean, she's very much herself, but she is also defined by her relationship. She's been part of a couple. She's a, of a sisterhood, a family, an educational community, a municipality, a society. And some of those well-hewn identities are are in flux, are morphing. And she's trying to find out what that means also in the context of great loss. I don't believe it's a spoiler to say in the first chapter we learn that her beloved husband of many years, um, Sam, dies. And it's a really remarkable opening chapter for a lot of reasons. It's called Broken English. And it's written in a way that is exceptional in the context of the book. There are a, there are many slashes, those those marks of punctuation, cutting 
it into little fragments. Um, why did you make that choice? I wanted the I wanted the language, the mm-hmm. sentences, the you know the very text to reflect the breakingness, the the things falling apart, that they are fragments, everything that has been held together, even the sequence, because some of those fragments belong later or come back from earlier. And it's sort of, I think you get the drift of yeah. what has happened, but it's it's very fragmented and broken apart. And I think, you know, it reflects the kind of um, how your head is going when you're in in the midst of some shock or trauma or loss that, you know, things have flown apart. And, uh, and so in a sense, you know, one can think of the, of the, of the novel as, you know, will, will these fragments somehow come together? You know, will they cohere? Will there be a narrative that Antonia can follow or narratives that she can follow and what will she use to guide what, how those pieces come together? You know, she's a she's been a, a person through her profession um, and her personality of um, of reflection and thoughtfulness and and so you know she's she doesn't I don't think she comes up with answers so much as that she keeps asking the questions um, of herself especially, and in the situation she finds herself in, you know. So I, I think that's, yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, when she's questioning, you know, her actions going forward or her comprehension of events that have, that are almost incomprehensible, like the sudden loss of her most beloved one, um, it's interesting how she starts to, and or it's it's noted that she is incorporating what Sam, her late husband, might have done in a similar situation too. Yeah, and one great thing about that was it really caused me to think about afterlife. I guess I, you know, as a layperson, just hear the word afterlife, I think of it associated with a person who has passed on, but it became Mm -hmm. afterlife much more as the fulfillment of the love of the lost person in the lives of those who are still on earth. Right. Yeah. Right. That part of the thing is that, um, that we create the afterlife of Mm. the people we love by embodying in our own lives going forward, the things which we don't want to see die along with their physical death, maybe um, qualities or ways of, of, treating other people, loving other people, so that, you know, we don't also lose that that skill set in the world, that, you know, that way of being, so that we create afterlives for them in, in embodying the best in them in the way we move forward beyond them, that we carry them with, with us. And in a long-term marriage, that osmosis is happening all the time. And when the other person... Uh, when we lose the other person, you know, you realize that, you know, that that leakage isn't going to come from out there. You know, it's got to have been in you uh, like a, you know, a sort of um, DNA that you're going to carry forward of those qualities and 
and that um, those sensibilities, those, you know, uh, moral choices that they made that you were pulled along by, but they, they're not there to make them anymore. So will you, you know, all those things while still remaining true to who you are, because no one else is going to be you, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> these are, you know, they're not easy. That's what I mean. It's not that she has answers. She's just, um, she's asking the questions. And I think that's, to me, the fiction that I most trust doesn't give me answers. It just gives me a way of understanding the questions and living them through specific characters and situations. So yes, that's what I think is, I meant by afterlife. (laughs) Right. And it's interesting to me as your reader, because I'm not sure I stood in judgment of any, she makes many big Many decisions of many magnitudes in this book, some big, some small, and I uh, don't I don't remember standing in judgment of the choices she made as much as I was interested to find out what choice she would make and why. Yeah, well, th- thank you for saying that, because I think that's part of her, you know, as uh, she is a, a Latina and uh, people assume she will make certain choices because of that. She's constantly trying to not be trapped by a label and not allow not allow her full complexity, as well as allowing others their full complexity instead of othering them into a into a stereotype and into a them versus us. So I think that's yeah she struggles with that, and so I hope that it invites my reader to feel kind of a relaxed, uh, in the sense that they, an openness, maybe more more accurate than a, relax, a relaxed feeling as they read, an openness to the full complexity of another's uh, sensibilities, which therefore, you know, in a, in a sense, grants the reader, you know, that that reflection back to allow themselves that, you know, to, that it's, we are all, um, you know, com- complicated people. Right. I I think it does grant that openness. And w- one example I'm thinking of is um, she is assumed because she is a Latina and her her husband is a white man. She is assumed to be the activist um, in the couple, <laughs> but really it's he. He he is the activist, yeah. and at a dinner party he can be counted on to hold forth. You know about his progressive ideals, and. Um, it causes you to extend the consideration into, you know, is that a matter of personality or might he have been privileged, you know, moving through the world in the body that he had um, to right. to be able to say those things um, and not to have to leave certain things unspoken, even if they are similarly held, those beliefs. Yeah. Thank you for note, noting that because... It it isn't as easy as he's the activist. She's not. Right. It's just um, she she's had to negotiate a more maybe compromise acceptance, you know, uh, in in that community, and uh, assumptions are made about her, you know, that that she she isn't given the full complexity to decide, and and she does that to herself as well, and he has yeah he's he's more sure. Uh, sure of himself and and that comes from you know who he is and the privileges that he's had to to have those yeah to be heard to be seen 
Mm. Yes. Um, I know that you have, we have mentioned that she um, is a retired professor of literature, and you have mentioned that um, these fragments from her reading for a whole full life as a reader, um, they, they come in and they, they like scroll through and they return. Um, they're always passing through her consciousness, and it's her way of moving through the world to have this associative, to put words on things. Um, right, right. Yeah. To try to find the right words to put on things. And and that's part of her situation now that the words that she comes up with, uh, they ca- somehow can't can't protect her from um, the grief and the sadness and the troubling world that she's living in and what she sees out there. You know that they don't offer that kind of solace. Right. There is a certain solace offered, though. Among her sisters, her sisterhood, she's the second of four, as mentioned. I would like to talk a little bit more about this really dynamic group. Um, They kind of come together and break apart throughout the narrative. And it's a vivid illustration of the individuality of all four sisters. Each one just, um, I could see, I could hear each one so different, but still, still of this sisterhood. Uh, Why was that a stimulating grouping to explore? Well, I've always been very interested in sisters. I come from a family of all sisters, no brothers. Um, The Mirabad sisters that I wrote about in in the time of the butterfly um, were, they're historical figures and there were four sisters. So I've been very, I'm very interested in the in that kind of um, connection, which is, isn't is always, you know, like solidarity, but has its struggles and um, trying to define the self within this amalgam. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I explore what, what does it mean to be in a sisterhood and how sometimes that can close down the individuality of each one by calling on the holy phrase, the sisterhood. You know, you got to be part of the sisterhood. Well, um, what does that what does that mean? And at the same time, to recognize that even with their struggles and their antagonisms and their histories and their grievances, they do come together and and um, you know pull together uh, at a very at many hard moments in the novel. So yeah, it's. Both a celebration, but without its complication again of what it means to be, you know, women related by blood as well as, you know, history and memory and and connection. Right. And also it got me thinking about sisterhood across cultures. The sisters are originally from the Dominican Republic. They're all resettled and have lived most of their lives in the United States. And, um, you know, the book really brings to light the ways in which family makes demands of us. And it shows how sometimes those demands can be in conflict with the demands of, you know, the world or the demands of our work or, you know, and I was wondering right. about, about you know, differences because it's like not all cultures default to blood is thicker than water, you know, like nowadays, well, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Definitely the culture I come from, Dominican. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, not to make it a broad uh, statement, but I think our, you know, Latino culture is very much 
la familia, the clan, your blood. It's it's very valued. I mean, that's, you know, those are your social services. Many social services available here, you know, aren't in our cultures. You go to your family, you know, and, and you... And families um, keep growing because if you if you both baptize a child, you're uh, if you baptize someone's child, you're the godmother, you're comadres, co-mothers, and that's also a very strong bond. So, what is what happens to you know that way of um, understanding relationship when you transplant it into a culture that doesn't um, necessarily recognize that or value that or privilege that, and so. Um, each of these sisters are finding different balances of what works for them, um, you know, given that they have that shared history. And how do they take care of each other and, and not pathologize ways that they are because the culture they've come into sees that as, as strange or not normal. You know, um, this is the way that they are and how not to, you know, uh, not to sort of um, deny that or or judge it. Uh, so that's another, you know, other things that I think that those, re- those relationships, those four sisters in the book are exploring. Right. And especially interesting that two of them, two among the sisters are therapists, which, which has its right. own, therapist has its own culture, you know, to, to mix into the stew. Right. But, but again, one of them, you know, uh, Izzy, is very concerned that this therapy background that she's been educated in has Eurocentric, patriarchal ways of understanding other cultures and and maybe pathologizing them. I mean, this is something she's been fighting for in her profession because, um, yeah, that's also an issue that maybe some of these behaviors that seem strange or, uh, you know, not dysfunctional to one culture are ways in which another culture functions and survives and understands their reality. So, yeah, and how to put all that together, not just in one person, not just in your own psyche, but within this very tight-knit group of of the sisters. I um, would love to close our conversation um, remembering what we're currently living through right now and ask in light of what's going on in our world, um, what is your hope for this book? Um, What is your wish for readers? Well, that, you know, it's the first time I've been asked that question because this is the first time we're all going through this moment of just pausing and trying to understand and pay attention to what's going on. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, you know, I could say that this is a book that takes place and its situation is very much a, a person who finds himself in a world that has fallen apart and and struggles with how do you live beyond the life that you've, you know, known before. But, you know, it almost feels kind of small to in any way, um, self-promote right now, you know, um, to say that my book is important because, you know, I just, I just think we're all sort of yeah, taking a pause and, and sort of, you know, feeling our way forward. I, you know, I've staked a life on 
stories are ways that um, how we've, you know, historically and, and beyond when history was written in oral storytelling, how we've taken care of each other, you know, the stories. And I was thinking about this because I've suddenly, you know, everybody I know is sending emails and stories and links and little videos and and all these things. And at first I thought, oh, my God. And then, you know, I was remembering Boccaccio, um, ah. who wrote the Decameron in 1370s um, about a, uh, the, the plague in, um, in Florence. And uh, these 10 young people, seven men and three women, are forced to leave Florence. And they find themselves out in the country um, and trying to keep their spirits up by each one telling a story for 10 days. <laughs> and I, I wrote back a friend and I said, so this is what we're doing, you know? This is our internet way of um, of telling stories and connecting. And, you know, um, they, they, someone sent me a video of uh, different little lockdown places in Italy where people have, are out on their balconies and they'll sing and someone will sing back and suddenly the whole from their different balconies, people are singing. And even the dogs, she pointed out, are barking in this <laughs> call and response. And I thought, wow, we are... We are, we're, we're, you know, we, as, as one friend said in another email, you know, um, that we get through this and, and, um, and sort of be the good people we are. And I loved that because it didn't say become better people or become a more, see, she said, um, be the good people we are to recognize that there is this goodness and connection. And I think storytelling is, is how we do that and connect and throw out those little tendrils. And uh, maybe maybe my little book will be a tendril that reaches someone that, you know, takes a hold of it and finds and finds meaning of it. But but um you know at this moment it even promoting it feels kind of awkward and and uh, you know I I don't know what more to say about that? Well, I'm so grateful just to be able to talk about it because your book sang to me at a time when I really needed it. And I am, it is a gift. So thank you. I, I believe in the power of storytelling and yours, I really felt connected to. And I am so grateful that you write, and I'm so grateful for the storytellers, because I just can't stay on Twitter one more minute. <laughs> well, th thank you, Megan, for saying that, because that is that the thing about uh, that it spoke to you, because that is a gift to me, because, you know, a book is only, it only completes its circle when a reader takes it in and gives it its afterlife after you write it <laughs> by bringing it alive in their imagination. And, you know, um, part of being at this craft now for 50 years or more, I mean, I am an elder, is is to realize that, you know, that is, you know, that is a gift um, when someone does that and one that I don't take for granted. And I'm very touched, you know, that will carry me through some dark days ahead that we're all going to need each. We will, we will all need to be the good people we are with ourselves and each other. Yeah. Thank you, Megan. 
Thank you, Julia. And once more, the title of the book is Afterlife. Thank you, thank you for appearing on Fully Booked. Thank you. Once again, that was the wonderful Julia Alvarez, author of Afterlife, out from Algonquin Books. Wow, Megan. She's so she's such a soulful, you know, big-hearted person. I think that's what comes through in the interview and and in the novel, too. I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. That's that that's that does it. <laughs> there's 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 <laughs> there's nothing better to say. So thank you for it. Yeah. I, again, just a yeah. lovely, wonderful woman. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk to her. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, I can barely believe this, but we have actually made it through the last episode oh. that signals that we have made it through the year 2020. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, okay. Cable, we might need a noisemaker noise here. Like, <laughs> you know, um, I'm very happy with the work we've put out this year. And I'm even happier to know that so many listeners were able to join us week after week. Thank you. One more time. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in, for listening. We're sending you all super best wishes for 2021, and let's all hope that things get better, right? It gets yeah. better, Megan? It, Isn't that the expression? Tom, I've heard it, and I've lived it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it does get better. So happy new year. Happy new, happy year, new year to everybody. And please join us again in the new year. Um, my first guest of 2021 will be author Koa Beck, who has written a book called White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. An important topic, a great book, and I'm really excited for this conversation. Me too. So, I mean, I think... We know what time it is. Tom, do you want to do the honors? Oh, Megan, I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> Ready? Ready. You know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. 